You're so welcome to the podcast today. I am delighted to be talking with Irish ethicist Professor Linda Hogan. She is Professor of Ecumenics in Trinity College Dublin and has huge amount of experience and teaching and research in pluralist and multi-religious contexts. She really loves uh, questions of ethics, of religion, including the ethics of women's rights, of international affairs, of globalization, biomedical ethics, in which she had a really cool conversation on the Good Summit with Professor Luke O'Neill last year. She is a senior leader here in Trinity College Dublin and has been the Vice Provost of this grand institution. She is one of the wonderful academics here in Trinity College. And without casting aspersions on academics anywhere else around the world, she's really humble and is really easy to talk to. Not all academics, good summer listeners, are easy to talk to. Linda is, and it was a real delight to have this conversation. I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. I think you will. Let's get on with it. Professor Linda Hogan, welcome to Keeping It Good, the Good Summer podcast. It is wonderful to be with you this morning. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Jules. Um, it's great to be here to be speaking with you um, on this podcast. I'm, as you know, a huge admirer of the Good Summit and um, just all of the initiatives associated with it. So it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. you. You beat me to saying that you're connected to the Good Summit and you've, you've led seminars for us before. And they've always been fascinating with a real, uh, it sounds strange to say it, but whenever I hear you speak connected to the Good Summit, it always seems to have a bit of integrity, Linda. It always seems to see, it always seems that you, you, you believe what you're saying, which is really what you want with everybody. Uh, sadly, not everybody always gives that impression. So it's a it's a real genuine joy Ed, to be chatting with you this morning. Can I can I ask first of all, tell us a bit, tell tell us your story. You know who you are. You where do you come from? How did you get to be, being professor of ecumenics in Trinity College Dublin? Well, um, I am from a small village in uh, County Kilkenny, um, and I um, at school actually I was very uncertain about what I wanted to do when I grew up so to speak and uh, I um, you know I was very I suppose bookish uh, very interested in politics and also now when I look back I understand that what I was really interested in was philosophy I was interested in understanding the kinds of questions to ask not so much about the answers and um but but when i and when i was finishing school i um decided to do a degree in theology and history um just because i i knew i wanted to do something in the humanities area i was fascinated by as I say, really by philosophy and ethics, but because I lived and grew up in a in a, a country that was so dominated by religion, all of the questions I had were questions that were asked through a religious worldview or or framework. Mm, so yeah. that's why I began to study theology. Uh, I went to Maynooth. Uh, in 1982 to do a degree in history and theology. I got captivated by the subject, um, met some amazing teachers and professors, 
including a man called Ender McDonough, who was really mm. a giant of mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. theology, ethics, uh, very strong reconciling presence um, involved in North-South relations and all sorts of important issues. Yeah. And so um, I continued to study with him. I did a, a master's and then a PhD in Trinity. And I suppose at each stage, I was just following my interest and uh, passion um, and, uh, you know, took various different um, uh, routes. You know, at one stage, I got fascinated by the early church. At another stage, I got fascinated by um, Wittgenstein. At another stage, mm. I got fascinated mm -hmm. by, um, you know, but they were all basically issues about how do we understand what our purpose and role is and how do we live in community together. So, so that was um, that was what I was really interested in as a, a student. Um, and then I finished my PhD and went to got a job first of all at um, what's now called University College Chester. It was called Chester College of Higher Education at the time. I was there for two years and met, met some wonderful people and made some great friends there. And then I moved to the University of Leeds, where I was for almost a decade. Oh, in wow. a very large, multi-religious, very dynamic um, religion department, and I loved it there. Um, and uh, but then I was keen to come back to Ireland, and um, I did when a position opened up in the Irish Corpus then the Irish School of Ecumenics. It had just integrated into Trinity, and I um, I returned to that and. Um, just continued doing what I love doing, which is to teach and research. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's really interesting. I love that you said part of what set you on this road was the desire not to have answers, but to have better questions, and to know Absolutely. that to know that at, at a young age, like that's that's quite something. Tell us. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I don't know um, about that, but it's, I remember um, being struck in school, uh, and I'm sure lots of people are, by the, cert the certainty about the answers and really not understanding why people could be so certain about them. Uh, and so it was then really about, well, we're, are we asking the right questions? And, and it was really that that sort of motivated me initially, I would say. Why on earth does that passion and that desire to, to be more concerned about better questions and helpful questions? And, you know, you've already kind of alluded to growing up in Ireland, you know, uh, Catholic Ireland, there's, as you know, books and books and books and books and books written on what Catholic Ireland is. And it has changed dramatically, whatever it, it meant, it has changed dramatically in the last number of decades. You know, Ireland, even maybe 30 or 40 years ago, was still seen as the bastion of Catholicism in Europe, maybe alongside Spain. But, but the, the last couple of decades have seen a vast move away from, uh, I was about to say a sentence, and I heard myself say it, and I thought, I don't know, is that true? I was going to say, away from religious fundamentalism on this Ireland, on this island, um, but there has not been a move away from 
from questions of meaning and purpose and dignity and, and rights, which are in many senses, you know, religious questions uh, as, as well. How do you begin? How do you begin to ask better questions in a place where fundamentalism, fundamentalism has held so much sway? Yeah, it's it's um it's a very good question, uh, Jules. I suppose I think that you know I would say that the Ireland I grew up in, and many of us grew up in, was very um, monolithic and monochromatic in terms of um well in in terms of religious identity, but also in terms of you know racial and ethnic and um you know, and sexual orientation, you know, they, we, we lived in a very monolithic world. Um, but I don't know if it, I would say it was fundamentalist. It was, it was, it was closed to a degree, but um, it was about what was commonly accepted. So there was a, a sort of a level of social um, propriety associated with believing certain things. But I would say that my education, and which was in a you know a, a convent school, uh, but also my family was quite you know was open to you know external influences. We read you know literature. We you know went to French you know on tours and that sort of thing. So so we were. It was the the the, the respectability was associated with a particular way of life and set of beliefs and so the, the and the state and politics all reinforced that but but i think looking back on it there were lots of external influences um and i, I suppose it really just depended on whether younger people were encouraged to to question to have open minds and to you know to to follow you know whatever their interests and passions were. So I, you know, I think everybody's experience of that time is different. And there's no doubt that as a society, it was very monolithic, but I think individuals experience within that was probably, you know, well, quite open, I think in lots of respects, because that was the context out of which all of this change very good. came. Okay. Okay, okay. How do people make decisions? Because you've become one of the lead ethicists. So moving from a very religious based social ethic into, into you know, what these islands experience now. Um, how, if we can just take a step back and, and tell me how people make ethical decisions. What are the components that go into that? Well, so let me say this is how we we hope to make ethical decisions. We try to make ethical decisions because, um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, like anything, there are multiple, you know, pulls on us and, you know, we, we find ourselves enthralled to certain things that we know we shouldn't be. So it's always, I wouldn't so, so much call it a struggle as a negotiation, but uh, I think, um, I do think that one of the things that's come out of this period of, you know, repression, you might even call it, is that there is a much stronger sense now that each person is unique and an individual with their own um, kind of unique 
um, food and, um, uh, you know, gifts. And, you know, the way I look at it, this is where I start ethics from. Every person counts for one. Mm. And no person counts for more than one. So you're saying each person is, each person's dignity and uniqueness is absolutely the centerpiece of where we, of what we have to start all of our ethical deliberations with. But also on the other side of it, there's, you know, no privilege, nobody skipping the queue, nobody having more uh, sort of worthiness counting for more than one. So I think that that, those kind of twin sort of poles for me are absolutely vital. And then we, co- we go from there to say, what, so what does it mean for me to be a unique person in relationship with all of these other unique people? Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's where we start to talk about what we, what we hold in common, what's distinctive, um, how we address the, the reality that even if we say people are, are essentially equal, they don't have equal of, equality of access to resources, to education, um, you know, to, to, to um, economic well-being, to inclusion. So, so from that, I think one starts to you know, look, I both look at what we currently have in terms of politics, economics, policy, etc., and see how it could be better, or else we try to build new, um, new networks, new alliances in support of new initiatives. But for me, it's about the person and the equality. Oh my, oh my goodness. Oh, you're, 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 you're lighting up all of these thoughts within me here, Linda. Uh, I love that. I love that dialectic tension. I love that real reality of I am one, I am important, I'm unique, I, I, I am a person. And I, is it too far to say I really only exist in partnership with other people then? You know, I get my personhood from you getting your personhood. This podcast is proudly supported by the amazing folks at Thought Collective, a team of designers and developers who create brands and digital products to captivate the crowd and communicate effectively. They make the Good Summit look great. Check them out at www.thoughtcollective.com. How, how can that be amplified? Because that's not what we see in the world around us, is it? I mean, we, we, we see it's it. not what we see in the world around us. No, no, no. Sorry, uh, Jules, I cut you off there. No, it's not what we. It's not what we see in a lot of the world around us. But I suppose it is what we see in other parts of the world around us. Um, I would say that um, you know another strand of what motivates me is a, a, a decision to see the good rather than the negative in the world. And I think it is a decision. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think if you, there are lots of interesting books written about, you know, the, the progress that has been made. And of course, it's two step forward, one step back. 
um, you know, it's true about equality, it's true about, you know, um, all sorts of things. But, but, but I think one has to, at least I believe um, fundamentally in the goodness of people mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, in our capacity to, um, to, to communicate and collaborate on the basis of this sort of fundamental commitment to ethics or to, 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 to ethical values. Um, it's true that um, there's a lot of I mean, horrendous inequality, violence, both people experience it at an individual level, but also societal, we can see it all around us. But, um, you know, when one thinks about what, how does change happen? Change just happens through individuals collaborating and being determined that either this is never going to happen again. We see that um, when you think about, when you look at, for example, the mother and baby homes, just going back to our earlier conversation. Yeah. You know, how did that issue of that horrendous inequality um, and the kind of in, uh, now the state kind of recognizing this should not have happened and sh should never happen again, how did that come to the fore? just individuals, people who had family members, um, survivors themselves, Catherine Corliss, wonderful historian, insisting that we pay attention to this. So change only happens by individuals in collaboration, determining, being determined that something will never happen again. Wow. Oh, I'm, do you know what? I'm, I'm almost feeling pain with this, Linda, because you know I think you would know as you would know people as I do, who have felt a purpose and a and a passion, and they've made the decision to stand on the side of good, to stand on the side of integrity, and right, and it and it almost destroys them. And there's those early pioneers in different movements, you know, to go to the 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 highest famous example. You've got the likes of Nelson Mandela. Uh, who, who, who died a global hero for peace and reconciliation and leadership and spent 27 years in prison in South Africa. You know, how, I suppose there's two questions really, is how, where does the confidence, how can we in the Good Summit help people have the confidence to take that stand, to choose to believe that, you know what, there, there is good here. There are things that we can do together. There are things that matter and and we have to choose those things. It's actually our three pillars, our, our, our values in the Good Summit is that everybody can be a change maker, everybody needs to be a change maker, and we are better whenever we change things together. You know, so you're, you're, you know, you're singing my song, I'm, this is music to my ears. So the first question is how can we, how can we encourage people to do that when it's not easy? Uh, maybe, maybe that's that's enough of a question to keep <laughs> Well. Um, I think through initiatives like the Good Summit is one is is one answer, Jules, because um, I think that I think the biggest challenge in those three pillars is actually the first one, as you said, to so that people actually can do believe that they can be a change maker, they can make a difference. And um, I think that that's, I think there are different elements that have to be, you know, in a way tackled. The first is um, to challenge and resist 
the the pessimism. I mean, there's a there is a there's a terrible pessimism and almost like a fatalism, you know, in our world today. Um, it's partly driven by the severity of the climate crisis, you know, because yeah. and, and yeah. all sorts of other sort of um, manifestations of that fundamental sort of recognition. But so so I I think it when we have to challenge the pessimism and the fatalism, not not by ignoring the problem, but by believing that we can make a difference. Mm. I think the second thing is, um, uh, I, I remember writing a piece um, many years ago um, with uh, two theologians, one I mentioned before, Enda McDonough and the other, Stanley Hauerwas, and it wow. was uh, called An Appeal um, uh, to Abolish War. And it was really an attempt to sort of challenge the Christian tradition's acceptance of violence as a necessary part of political progress. Um, but, but one of the things that we wrote about at that time was the way in which there is, you know, there's a, the way of, there's a way of telling the history of the world, of a country or whatever, which um, either prioritizes violence and sees history as something that is really, you know, a, a violent past without recognizing all of those peace movements, resist movements of resistance, of challenge, of positive, hopeful movements that were about economic progress, about rights, et cetera, whether it was, um, you know, um, rights for women, rights for those who, uh, in terms of sexual identity, et cetera. So, so we, have to, we have to see our history um, differently, I think. That's part of the change, making the change. It's, it's resisting this idea that actually we're just in a, history's always been like this and we're just in a mess. We're not. Actually, we've, there, has, there have been tremendous um, steps of progress. There is, um, you know, and many of the endemic um, issues have been challenged. They haven't been resolved. I mean, we see that with slavery in the US and the way in which the legacy is still very much there in the, uh, which is being challenged now by the Black Lives Matter movement. But, but there is progress. There are stories of hope. There are stories of real meaning that, and that's not just at the individual level, but also at the um, societal level. And I think it's about galvanizing people with these stories, connecting with that, or like what Jonathan Shell calls the alternative history, which mm. is a history mm -hmm. of progress, a history of positive action, a history of change through ordinary people. Um, insisting that life can be different and forming networks and associations to make that happen. So it's not that everything can or has to be accomplished once and for all. It's, it's always going to be a process, but it is a, um, a process that if you look back, you can see there have been in moments of real um, opportunity and real progress. So I think that's the way that that's important as a part of an answer to your question about how people can believe 
because um, everything around them is telling them the opposite. Yeah. So yeah. we have to have voices of hope. Yeah, yeah. Telling the stories, looking at the realities and, and choosing uh, to look at, you know, it's, it's the Anish Nen quote. Uh, we don't see things as, as they are, we see them as we are. So, you know, putting on the glasses of progress, putting on the glasses of hope, choosing to see whether there has been a, a positive difference uh, made and something has actually been transformed. Um, whenever I say common good to you, you know, so the, the good summit is about common good. Uh, what, what, what comes to your mind? How do you define common good when you hear? What, what's in you when you hear that phrase? Well, uh, I think it's, it's, about, um, it's about this shared dignity that we all have. Mm -hmm. And it's about working together to, um, to create the conditions and they might be, you know, they might be structures, they might be organizations, or they might be sort of cultural values working together to create the conditions that everyone can have a share in that common good. Mm -hmm. that, that's what it means to me. Um, and then just other, the other thing I, I have been thinking a lot about this actually and just starting to write about it actually is um, I think one of the things that we need to reckon with is that one of the things that we share is um, a vulnerability. So a lot of ethics is built on, you know, our shared capacity for action, our shared autonomy, etc. But we share a vulnerability as well. And if we can connect with that sort of understanding of this shared vulnerability, which really, I think, orients us to the other, to relationships, and build strength from that. Um, I think that that also has a real capacity to, um, to energize us. And, you know, we know, I think it's particularly important in the context of the climate crisis, because it's not just human animals that are vulnerable, you know, the, the ecosystem is vulnerable, the climate, uh, the environment is vulnerable. So uh, I think this sort of move away from this sort of kind of politics of power to a sort of a sense of what we share, one of the things we share is this sort of relatedness and vulnerability. And if we can build collaboration from that, I think that would also really help amplify other voices and um, you know, give, give more people an opportunity to speak their um, truth and their sort of commitments and have those uh, included in our conversation. Yeah, wow. And and to me, that circles just right back to, to almost where you started. Actually, my personhood really does depend on yours. Uh, and, and, you know, I am a fully dignified person, actually, whenever you are too. And whenever we view each other through those lenses. Uh, Linda, this has been, believe it or not, our time is almost gone. This has been, this has been absolutely great. Can, can I ask you one last thing? Uh, a 20, 22, 24, 25-year-old listening, thinking, right, I believe that the world can be a better place. I want it to be a better place. 
what are the one or two things that are your words to that person listening who thinks, you know what, I think this stuff matters. What can I do about it? Well, the first thing I would say is my experience is that the 22, 23, 24, 25 year olds know that. Yeah. They think this yeah. matters. They are, uh, you know, I, I, I think I think it's about making the connections with people who can, like-minded people who can give you support. You know, the, all of the collaborations really depend on getting energy and support from other people. So it, it's not an individualistic enterprise. It's, it's really? about the common good. Yeah, wow. Wow. And, and you mentioned those earlier, kind of those networks and the collaborations and the associations. Uh, all, all of those things that's burned. and anything else a final word well I, I I suppose I would say you know let's resist the fatalism together it's not you know we we can't have rose-tinted glasses but but we must I think um, ensure that we are clear-sighted about where the challenges are but know that um, uh, we, we have the the common sort of capacity to address them. Resist the fatalism together. Linda Hogan, thank you so much. I feel like this conversation has been helping me actually to resist some of the fatalism that's out there. Uh, if, I, if I can thank you and tell everybody listening uh, that you were uh, you were very wise in saying that we should record this uh, as, as we were recording on Zoom, we, we should record it where uh, you didn't have a building site outside your office. Sadly, we've recorded it where I have had a building site <laughs> outside my office. So I hope that people got the authenticity of a of a city centre conversation with uh, with planes flying over and a building site outside my office there. But uh, the magnificent Andy, who's our editor, I'm sure will scratch his head and smile at me for giving him a challenge with, with all of that. But Linda, thank you so much for your time today. And we'll see you at the next Good Summit. We keep going. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Jules. Thank you so much. That was Keeping It Good with Professor Linda Hogan talking about ethics and what can make this world a better place. Oh my goodness, isn't it just brilliant to be inspired and to try to go forward and live without rigidity. Resist the fatalism she resist the fatalism we were challenged it's just brilliant thank you to linda thank you to you for listening thank you to all who put the podcast together thinking of our podcast team of andy and of steph and of all all involved in the good summit we got some really cool announcements coming up about the good summit soon so stay in touch stay involved keep listening and we'll catch you soon